Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello, I'm John Henley and this is Brexit Memes, the Guardian podcast that boldly holds the dark, deranged enterprise known as Brexit up to the bright and unforgiving light of actual reality and asks Britain, is this really what you've become? Unfortunately, it looks pretty much like it is at the moment, but hey, we're not going to let that get us down. So in this episode, Theresa is definitely out. Boris may be in. A surprising number of potential leaders of our great and glorious country appear to have learned precisely nothing from the past three years. And while Conservative Party members may humour them, Brussels certainly won't. So we're all going to hell in a handcart or something like that. Anyway, what's happened since last we talked? As is often the case with Brexit, quite a lot. And again, not very much. We had the European elections, which interestingly saw the threatened Eurosceptic tsunami fail to materialise in most countries except Britain, where Nigel Farage's Brexit party, but also the pro-Remain Lib Dems and the Greens, did very well, and the Conservatives and Labour very badly. With a tear in her eye, Theresa May then departed without ever trying to bring her thrice-defeated deal back to the Commons. And the race for the poisoned chalice that is her succession is currently well underway, with Boris Johnson looking like it's his to lose, and, bar one or two notable exceptions, pretty much every other candidate promising to have a go at the EU because they think they're hard enough, or at any rate, harder than the outgoing PM, and therefore hard enough to return from Brussels with a renegotiated deal and the problem of the Irish backstop solved. That seems to be perfectly frank pretty unlikely because the EU have repeated time and time again that the withdrawal agreement concluded in December of which the backstop is of course an intrinsic part will not in fact be reopened. So, several of the leadership candidates, including Johnson, have promised that if that does prove to be the case, they will be prepared to take the UK out of the EU on October the 31st without a deal, with all that that entails. However, plenty of parliamentarians, including at least one Tory leadership candidate, have promised in their turn that if a new prime minister does seem intent on driving the country over the cliff, they will be prepared to vote the government down. And most observers do seem to think, despite Labour losing a recent vote on the issue, that there probably is still a majority in the House of Commons against no deal, even if it might be complicated to make it work. So where does that leave us? Up the same impasse as Theresa May, with me in the studio to ponder what might happen next and whether who eventually succeeds May may stand any chance whatsoever of avoiding her fate are Georgina Wright from the Institute for Government and Jonathan Liss of British Influence and on the line from Brussels, The Guardian's correspondent Jennifer Rankin. Welcome to all of you. Hello. 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 
Um, let's start with a little look back at Theresa May and her record on Brexit, shall we? John, I'm turning to you first, simply because I know that you are absolutely itching to say what an underrated prime minister she was, how very hard she tried to make good on all her promises and how it really wasn't her fault at all that this whole wretched Brexit thing slipped somehow through her grasp. <laughs> John, you know me too well for this podcast. Um, yes, uh, there is going to be uh, a lot of clamouring for Theresa May, a lot of pining for the devil that we knew as uh, the country really does descend into uh, the abyss uh, and sort of a hellfire over the coming months. And I think we really need to push back against that because Theresa May was the woman who set all this in motion. First of all, Boris Johnson is a product of Theresa May. In July 2016, Johnson was his career was in ruins after he um, he spectacularly botched his own leadership bid, and she brought him back not only into the cabinet but into the, uh, as the role of foreign secretary. So she resurrected him, she made him credible again, and so this is really on her the fact that we're going to get him. Uh, but in you know her her three year premiership was a feast of delusion, lies, blackmail, blackmail of MPs, the gaslighting and slandering of Remain uh, voters, uh, the abuse of power uh, from not wanting to give Parliament a say on anything the toleration of debasement of public discourse. She failed to listen, build consensus, uh, seek any compromise. Like a conventional dictator, she uh, sought to fuse the national interest with her own until she and Brexit both came to embody uh, national and personal nihilism. Uh, <laughs> so uh, on that level, there is literally nothing good that we can say about her other than the fact that she inherited a poison chalice and made it much, much worse for herself. Right. Thank you very much. Well, that's pretty clear. Georgina, any thoughts on that? I mean, how will May be remembered in Brussels, do you think? Is that, I mean, is there any sort of lingering affection for any grudging admiration, any acknowledgement at all of what a tough hand she was dealt? Or, or is there just sort of, you know, the overriding feeling that she, yeah, OK, she may have been dealt a tough hand, but she played it appallingly? I think EU leaders will probably be a bit kinder uh, to this <laughs> May than John, actually. Look, I think EU leaders... I uh, think several things um, when it comes to uh, Theresa May. First is uh, sympathy. I think they have their own electorates. They will understand the pressures that the Prime Minister was under. But mixed with that is some alarm and, and some surprise, really. Alarm with, obviously, when, when the Prime Minister came out and said no deal's better than a bad deal, that came as a bit of a shock over on the EU side. And also the, the idea that the government triggered Article 50 began that process without really having a plan that was supported by a majority in the House of Commons. But it didn't entirely come as a surprise in the sense that the UK's own experience of the EU is, is quite particular. As a big member state, you can essentially call the shots. If you agree with an EU policy, you say so loudly and clearly. And if you didn't, then you'd also say so loudly and clearly. You'd build coalitions with other EU countries and you'd get what you wanted. This is obviously a very, very, very different negotiation. All of a sudden, the UK couldn't really really call on other member states because they were on the other side um, of this debate. And there was a real kind of the onus was really on the government to come up with some proposals. The commission, you know, introduced a series of options, this famous kind of staircase um, slide that Michel Barnier presented. None of them satisfied the government. And so they said, well, you come up with an alternative. So, yeah, I think sympathy, alarm, surprise. And then, oh, my goodness, this is just the UK uh, acting up as usual. Doing its thing. Exactly. Yeah. OK. All right, Jennifer, um, cast, let's cast it a little bit forward if we can. Um, I'm not going to ask you, you know, who the EU27 would like as Britain's next prime minister. That would hardly be fair. And I doubt whether anybody's saying that. But um, I mean, could you just give us a bit of an idea of how exactly they would like him? Because we do now know that it will be a him 
to differ from Theresa May. In very simple terms, I think the EU would like a British Prime Minister that could get the withdrawal agreement passed through the House of Commons, exactly what May tried and failed uh, three times to do. That's what they would like, but that's certainly not what anyone is expecting. Uh, they are expecting a Brexiteer Prime Minister, probably a Boris Johnson, uh, or at least someone who's going to take a, a much uh, more confrontational approach with the EU than Theresa May did, although she was also quite confrontational at times as well. There's a, really a sense among EU officials of that they're quite dispassionate about the next prime minister, in a sense. They're not really, I mean, that they're watching from the sidelines or with a little bit of exasperation, but also actually not a lot of huge interest. There's a bit of a weariness with the whole Brexit process, and they would just really like to the UK to get on and decide what it wants. And, and just what I would underline is that what people say many times is that they don't see this as a problem of individuals, of the person in number 10, but a problem of the whole British political system or the House of Commons, that it's simply unable to make a choice that, confronted with all the trade-offs of Brexit, um, MPs have simply refused to make them. So that's the big issue for the EU, but perhaps less so than the, the individual in number 10, although obviously that matters too. Yeah, but some more, yes, about the whole the whole approach and the structure of the of sort of British politics that's produced that. Okay, um, the European elections they mattered quite a lot in the UK, didn't they? Is it fair to say that, Jonathan? But mainly because they've basically sort of put the fear of God into the Conservative Party. So there was a you know the the, the show of strength by by Farage's party has got very big implications, had already had big implications for their for their choice of Tory leader and, and of course, what all the candidates feel they are now obliged to say about Brexit. Absolutely. But um, the real problem is one that none of the Tory candidates is prepared to accept, and that is um, that Farage's rise guarantees the destruction of the Conservative Party in all circumstances. Boris Johnson was telling the truth, um, amazingly, when he said that <laughs> the Tory party face extinction if they didn't deliver Brexit by the 31st of October. That's true, because the Tory party is in fact the Brexit party. That's the real Brexit party. That is a single issue party. And if the first action of Boris Johnson is to go to the EU uh, in October and ask to stay in it, that is him finished. But there is no alternative. The only alternative to that is to either take us into no deal, which would guarantee uh, the Tories' destruction as well, because that would be an economic calamity. They would never recover from that or to um, face election uh, on a no-deal platform, uh, which uh, they would lose because uh, the moderates would round up against them. Only about a third of the population support no-deal. Or have Parliament force that extension on Johnson, which would uh, would again shatter the the Tories and humiliate them and reveal them as not being uh, fit for purpose. So there's there's nothing that they can do which will guarantee their survival because Farage has guaranteed that while the Lib Dems and Greens and to extent Labour are waiting on one flank... um, and the hard Brexit is awaiting on another flank. What are the Tories for? Nobody seems to know. And completely squeezed in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. OK, um, well, that all sounds promising. Georgina, um, is it that that's led them to make these completely unrealistic promises? I mean, you know, I mean, practically everyone from Johnson to Jeremy Hunt, Michael Gove, to Sajid Javid, Dominic Rubin, they're all basically saying, of course, we can renegotiate. We can achieve what Theresa May and her team never managed, essentially just because we believe in Brexit. 
surely they can see that at some stage down the line they are going to have to face up to the fact that they've all oversold themselves, aren't they? It's really interesting, actually, in this leadership contest because it's almost not really taken into account what the EU thinks about this process. It's very much, as as John said, Brexit is the single issue at the moment. And the key question is, can the Conservative Party survive Brexit? Of course, the difficulty of Brexit is exactly the same as it was on the 24th of June, which is, can you find a compromise with the EU that is going to fly in uh, the House of Commons? And at the moment, they haven't been able to do that. And so I think... The EU, in that sense, have been very consistent. They say, look, the best deal is already on the table. It reflects months of lengthy, complex and at times tedious negotiations. It is a compromise. And it was signed up to at a governmental level by the UK. Exactly. (laughs) Um, And, you know, the problem is you weren't able to lead on that. You weren't able to sell it in a way. And so the, the interesting question for a new prime minister is, will they be able to sell either this deal or a tweaked version of Mm. this deal? Is that going to be enough? Hmm. Okay, Um, Jennifer, I mean, a tweaked version of the deal. What exactly are the EU's red lines when it comes to to tweaking that agreement then? I mean, Jeremy Hunt, and it was quite interesting, said um, last week that Angela Merkel had told him during the D-Day commemorations that the EU 27 might be willing to be a bit more flexible. But where is that wiggle room? And particularly, I suppose, on the on, on the backstop, is it is, is basically a case, is it of, of you can have what you want in the political declaration, but we're not going to touch the, the withdrawal agreement itself? I think that is more or less where we are. And, and Jeremy Hunt is only the latest in a long line of British politicians who um, misunderstand Angela Merkel. And she has a tendency to make these polite, um, perhaps rather gnomic statements um, to to other political leaders in press conferences. And these are always interpreted as a big change of heart or encouragement when, in fact, the German position remains solidly as it always was. And I think that's true in this case, that, that Germany maintains there's going to be no renegotiation of the withdrawal agreement. We've heard that message loudly and clearly many, many times from from EU leaders at all levels since that agreement was negotiated last November. And I really think that EU do not want to reopen this withdrawal agreement, uh, that it would be very damaging for the EU themselves if, if they did that. But yes, there is room for manoeuvre on the political declaration, which has been promised all along. And there's probably also maybe room for some special annexes or or side um, documents setting out a timetable on how to achieve the future relationship and how to work on those famous alternative arrangements so the UK can avoid the backstop, which is what uh, all the Conservative frontrunners, or most of them are insisting, has to be avoided. So I think the EU could could give a bit of ground on on those points, but it's very hard to see what they could actually do that they haven't done before. We've already had statements from EU leaders. We've had a special letter from Donald Tusk and Jean-Claude Juncker. We've had countless offers on the political declaration. And none of these things swayed MPs when they were put to them earlier this year. So it's very hard to say to see how anything of this nature could be decisive this time around. So it does feel like we're very much where we've been all along, with no renegotiation on the withdrawal agreement and only some very limited tweaks on the political declaration. Mm. 
Georgina, you wanted to come in. I think um, Jeff is absolutely right. And I think part of the reason for their, that thinking is that they think the solutions, particularly to the backstop, lie in the future negotiations. So those negotiations around trade and security that cannot begin until a withdrawal agreement is in place. And there's a real sense that actually if you reopen the withdrawal agreement, you risk unravelling it altogether. Um, and so that is a greater risk than actually passing the withdrawal agreement and beginning those new negotiations. Because, you know, what I like to say is if we think this Set of negotiations. These negotiations have been complicated. Just wait until, wait until we start the future relationship. Exactly. Absolutely, John. Of course, one of the components of the withdrawal agreement is the financial settlement. And Boris, besides promising to be ready to leave without a deal if necessary, has also threatened to withhold that thirty-nine billion pound divorce settlement. Um, Dominic Raab reckons the next Prime Minister should even be willing to prorogue Parliament to get a no Brexit deal done. I mean, both of those options would meet huge resistance here, wouldn't they? Well, the first one is tantamount to us defaulting on our debt. And the second one is uh, an attempt to resurrect Charles I. Um, (laughs) So uh, I don't suppose either of those would end particularly happily for anyone concerned. Um, This is the language of, you know, apocalypse. This apocalypse Britain. This is what you say when you've completely run out of delusion, you've run out of road, run out of ideas, and you, in your desperation, think, what is the one thing that could finally combust this show? And both of those things are it. Uh, If a country doesn't uh, accept uh, its formal life, liabilities no one is ever going to negotiate anything with you because you've shown yourself to be a total basket case in the international stage that is in nobody's interest and if you start proroguing parliament we don't have a a totalitarian system in this country we don't even have a presidential democracy this is literally parliamentary sovereignty this is what brexit was meant to be about giving parliament back control so the minute you start saying that that control was actually meant for the prime minister uh, you just blow the whole thing up for the lie that it always was and just to go back to what sort of uh, Jennifer and Georgie were saying about uh, renegotiation, I think it's it's really quite simple. Uh, when Angela Merkel is talking about uh, what the flexibility is, it goes in, in one of two directions. You either soften the political declaration to make it clear that you want to negotiate a single market and customs union, which is obviously completely a non-starter for the Conservatives, or you harden it by pairing back the backstop just to Northern Ireland, which destroys the Conservative and Unionist Party because it completely separates Northern Ireland and it gives the lie to the, the promise that we're going to have any kind of economic integrity for the UK. So there's nothing else that can be done and the backstop can't be changed, not least because in the extension document it says that no more negotiations can happen exactly. while this while this extension pertains. Yeah, that is a clause in the latest extension that everybody seems to be handily forgetting. Georgina, I mean, the, I mean, the EU27 would, would, would run a mile as well, wouldn't they? If, if, I mean, if somebody, someone who favoured proroguing, suspending Parliament were to be elected the new Prime Minister. I mean, that that would just be curtains, wouldn't it? There would be no further talks possible. I mean, it's very rare for the EU to intervene directly uh, in uh, domestic politics in a member state. Um, I think the EU are open to further discussions and talks with the new Prime Minister. They owe a new Prime Minister that, at least. But again, their their message is going to be firm and pretty consistent. Um, it has been so far, so why would it change? Which is, there will be no substantial renegotiation. We can talk, we can talk about the future outlook, and we know that informal talks have already been taking place. So I think there will be um, appetite to meet 
meet and to discuss. But whether or not that leads to something that's substantially different, I, I highly doubt it. Yeah. Okay. And Jennifer, just on the on the question of the divorce bill. You know, obviously, as Jonathan said, there, you know, there's clearly a sort of political and a, and, a, and a moral obligation to pay. Is there, strictly speaking, a legal obligation? Could Britain theoretically be taken to court over this? And if so, which court might it be? Well, like so many things in Brexit, that's disputed by both sides. When this issue first emerged in 2017, the government never really quite conceded the EU's point that there was a a legal obligation. So the question is still an open one. And potentially people people have speculated that the UK could be taken to the International Court of Arbitration in The Hague. So possibly in the event of a no-deal Brexit, there is a a bonanza for lawyers on, on this question. And then interestingly, you've also had the French government sort of making dark noises that if the UK did uh, renege on its promise on the on the Brexit money, this should be seen as equivalent to a sovereign debt default, although that's somewhat disputed by some money market watchers. But n- nonetheless, I think all, the, all these questions are interesting, but they're ultimately trumped by, by politics. And I think in, in the short term, if the UK refused to pay what it had promised then the EU would quite simply refuse to negotiate. And then if we did end up in a no-deal situation, the the view in the EU, as as we've discussed many times on this podcast, is that it's much worse for the UK. And then I think the phone lines go dead and, and you really are in a very desperate situation for the UK rather than having any leverage from, from withholding this money. Hmm. OK, let's look a little bit at... Um, the prospects of no deal, which everybody seems to agree have sort of risen um, with the emergence of or confirmation, I suppose, of, of Boris Johnson as the likely next next prime minister. Uh, Jonathan, how realistic is it to still believe that Parliament will stop a no deal Brexit? The, the government defeated that that Labour motion last week. Are there still mechanisms? Will there still be opportunities? Is it going to come down to, or might it come down to the sort of the nuclear option of a, of a no confidence vote? This is the only question in town right now. Um, I wrote a piece of The Guardian after that vote last week in which I said, don't panic. Um, Parliament has said, it hasn't said yes to no deal. It said yes to continuing indecision. And I still I still think that's the case. It wasn't the right time. Um, Corbyn's intervention wasn't helpful. There were uh, lots of Tory Remainers who didn't want to embarrass um, the, the leadership candidates. Uh, you know, there are, there are three Tories um, who voted for the government who actually resigned from the government in order to either... Um, oppose no deal or back a referendum like uh, Sarah Newton and um, and Joe Johnson so there are still parliament is still absolutely opposed to no deal so the question is are there going to be mechanisms? Yes, no confidence is a nuclear option. Uh, John Burko uh, has uh, said on many occasions that he will strain every sinew to allow mm. MPs' voices to be heard. Now, what the extent of his power is above my pay grade, but I, if MPs demonstrably want to do something, it seems inconceivable that they won't be given the opportunity to do that. And um, the final question is, if you did get to the final point where all avenues had run out, mm. the Prime Minister hadn't asked for an extension, uh, then you'd be left with the only uh, choice that the Parliament has, which is, do we revoke or do we go for no deal? And that question has not been asked and we don't know what the answer yeah, will be. Of course, that's true. OK, um, but, you know, even bearing all that in mind, uh, Georgina, you know, and we're, 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 we're heading into a bit of a sort of... a. a a lull are we not i mean it it look if you look at the the diary for what's coming up um 
you know the new so the new PM Johnson presumably will be installed in late July. Then uh, you know ten days, two weeks after that, Parliament goes into recess. When it comes back, it, pretty soon afterwards, it's going to be party conference time. And at the same time, the EU is sorting out its new commission. Or, you know, I mean, Donald Tusk, the president of the European Council, when that extension was granted to the 31st of October, implored Britain not to waste its time. That is what it's doing, isn't it? So the EU had two conditions, really, for this extension. One is, please don't delay your decision, but actually make a decision. That was number one. And number two was, do not interfere or meddle with our ongoing EU discussion. So obviously we have appointments of the EU's top jobs at the moment, but we've also got budget talks. So that's seven-year you know, um, EU budget, how it's going to be spent, where those priorities are going to be. And they wanted a constructive UK partner in that, in that sense. But yes, timing is an issue. You've just mentioned all the stuff that's happening in the UK, but there's a lot happening in the EU as well. But, you know, when it comes to an extension, I think the EU pretty much take the position where if the UK wants to jump out of the window, fine, but they're not going to be the ones to push the UK out of the window. You could potentially have some strong language at this uh, this week's European Council. But again, they might decide, actually, this isn't the time. They're, you know, the UK, sort of the Conservative Party in the middle of a leadership contest, this is not the right time. I would expect the EU to again make that kind of strong statement about uh, an extension, don't take it for granted. We might oppose it, but push come to shove. I think they, they would. They would still support. Yeah, Jennifer, is the you know the makeup, the new makeup of the Parliament, and of course the fact that there's you know going to be a completely new Commission. Are there any kind of constellations that are sort of foreseeable in Brussels and Strasbourg that might have any kind of concrete impact on the way? Brexit plays out from the EU perspective or or is is the sort of the course now set? Well the EU discussion on top jobs is is actually still very hazy, very unpredictable and it's hard to see who who are the people who are going to get these jobs with the the first one due in November the 1st, a new president of the European Commission, which is just one of five big EU jobs um, which is going to change in the next few months. And these questions are always a a bit of a political Rubik's Cube where you've got to balance north, south, left and right, and now also Greens and Liberals who are looking for bigger roles after the European elections where they did better than the in the previous time. So it's, it's a very complicated discussion for the EU and it's not going very quickly. We may find out a few more details this week when EU leaders meet in Brussels for a summit. Oh, and while originally Donald Tusk had hoped to have this question sorted out by the end of June, that now looks pretty much impossible and there's already talk of potentially a, a delay in the new commission uh, which is due to take office on the 1st of November and the, the potential sort of ramifications for Brexit is that you know maybe that could sort of ricochet into the discussion on any potential extension if the, if the government was asking for one because originally the, the debate on the previous extension and the reason for setting it on November the 1st was that France was very insistent that the UK shouldn't be part of the new commission there shouldn't be a British commissioner at the table. So how that plays is is very hard to predict. And I tend to share Georgina's view that when push comes to shove, the EU would rather not um, push the UK out of the window, to, to use that phrase. But nonetheless, you do see a bit of hardening of, of language. There's growing impatience with the 
with the government. There's a growing sense of weariness with Brexit. And I think more people have gone over to the Macron side of the argument that maybe it's, it's better to force this issue than not. I mean, that said, I think it's, it's a hypothetical question and we'll only really know the answer until October when this is a, a real live issue again. Jonathan? I would just add Ireland to that. Um, it's um, Ireland will always take priority over the UK. Uh, we were saying two years ago that the EU hates uh, this situation. Uh, if the UK is going to be difficult, then some people would think maybe it's better of out. But Ireland has to take priority. No deal would be a political and economic calamity um, for Ireland. And so unless the Irish are going gung-ho about it, uh, which is very unlikely, um, they will always come down on that side of caution saying, fine, have another extension, I believe. OK, um, so that all of that being said, Jonathan, if we assume that, you know, no deal will be stymied somehow and that the last thing the Tories want is a new election or a, a second referendum, that all points to the UK asking for more time. Is it not also true that the best possible solution for whoever becomes the new prime minister will be to try and get some kind of, you know, marginally tweaked version of the of the deal through? Well, certainly, yes, the extension, and they would make it. They would make life a lot easier for themselves. They would just be honest about that now. And to to be fair to them, a couple are saying we don't have a clear red line of thirty first of October. Johnson has made a rod for his own back by telling the ERG that it is a red line, and by you know telling uh, the Remainers that he wants to get a deal through. I mean, one of those is possible. Uh, but clearly not both, because there simply is no time to even to renegotiate a political declaration uh, before 31st of October and get through that through Parliament. Yeah, I mean, 31st of October is hopeless. We are going to be in the EU on the, 30, on the 1st of November. I'm pretty, pretty sure of that, unless we've um, somehow gone into the no deal. But a tweaked version of the deal. Look, some people think if anyone can get the deal through, it's Boris Johnson because he's a showman and a salesman. But at the same time, there are going to be even the Labour MPs in leave seats who have become sympathetic to the deal, despise Boris Johnson and are not going to give him a political leg up. So that's one thing you can ignore. And the other thing is that there are going to be so many... The ERG have no investment in Johnson personally. If Johnson um, shafts them... They are not going to thank him with deference and say, well, we'll vote for you anyway, Mr Johnson. Thank you very much. They will uh, be as hard uh, against him as they were on Theresa May. And they're already making noises. Absolutely, effect, absolutely. They? He's he's uh, treading a very dangerous um, line here because he thinks that his his magic charisma alone will get him through like it always has. It will not. If, they, if he betrays them, they will reward him with defeat over and over again. OK. Uh, Georgina, is that the way you see it playing out? I mean, is the, I mean, is the EU's... I mean, how... How extensible is the EU's patience on, on, on this whole thing? I mean, I'm always of the view that um, you don't want the EU to get frustrated to the point where it becomes inflexible. And, and that kind of tips when EU electorates themselves become frustrated with the process. Um, at the moment, EU electorates are kind of engaged. They're kind of interested, but it's not at the top of their brain. When you look at EU press uh, coverage of the EU, it's very much what's going to happen with the refugee crisis, who's going to get the top jobs, what about Eurozone, Italy's debt. Brexit's there. It's interesting, but it's not at the, at the top of their minds. 
But the moment they feel that actually this is taking up a lot of time and energy away from other issues, it might make EU leaders more inflexible in what they can actually offer the UK. And I think that is an important thing to bear in mind for any new prime minister, any new government, is we have to tread that a fine line between continuing these discussions because we actually think they're going to make a difference versus let's just delay it continuously and actually just frustrate both sides. Sort of pushing the EU up against exactly. the wall. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Jennifer, is that, I mean, is that what you're hearing? Is, it, is there any confidence at all in the EU sort of 27 capitals that Britain's finally going to stop talking to itself about this? I say the short answer to that is no. And, uh, but also coupled with a, a real um, weariness with Brexit um, among the EU, there's almost this sense that it's like a sort of Netflix series that has just gone on for too many episodes and now everyone's beginning to switch off and, because all the plot lines are, and, uh, and the, the messages are sounding so similar and going round day. and round. Yeah. But I, I think the EU was surprised, although not exactly shocked, but nonetheless taken aback by just how much of the extension was going to be devoted to choosing a new leader of the Conservative Party that... There, there, there were hopes, at least, that that this t- might have been time to to allow the UK to, to come together and to work out what it really wanted and how it would resolve the Brexit crisis. And there's a sense that having a Tory leadership um, contest just isn't doing that. In fact, it's doing the opposite by just setting the same old um, uh, illusions, uh, in, inflating the same old illusions that we saw in 2016. So I think the, the EU see that very little has changed in the, the British debate but nonetheless, they sort of wait to see how what a new prime minister will actually do once they're in office. Yeah. Georgina? Um, and very quickly to add to that, I think there is a sense amongst EU leaders, there's, there's a slight worry that if all of a sudden they agree to kind of reopen negotiations, what message that was send to their own sort of politicians in their own countries who are kind of anti-EU, who think, well, actually, the best way to stop EU reform is either, either to block it or continually hammer home a message, because inevitably, at some point, the EU will accept and we'll do what we like. There are broader political implications of how the EU reacts to this debate and what it decides to do. just strategic Brexit ones, yes, Jonathan. I, th- I absolutely agree with what uh, Georgie has just said. And uh, the, the fact is that uh, it's now a political question. It's a question of uh, cohesion, solidarity, leverage. Um, even if uh, there are some people in the EU who thought it would be a good sense politically and economically uh, to give way on the backstop issue, um, that would be so damaging in terms of what it was sent to Ireland and the smaller countries in particular um, that a large country which was leaving the bloc was being um, given preferential treatment over an existing member that that could actually do the EU lasting damage and they just absolutely want to avoid that scenario. Okay, we're starting to run out of time. We began with Theresa May. Let's end with the person who looks like her successor at the moment, at least. Uh, Jonathan, um, you gave us a bit of a tour de force on uh, on, on poor Theresa. Uh, Boris in number 10. Um, what is there to say? <laughs> What it what it says is that um, we have um, become a, a dystopian feudal theme park um, <laughs> that PG Woodhouse has uh, maybe con- conjured up on a bad acid trip. Um, that we have uh, finally uh, given up any sense of seriousness or, or uh, sort of noble values uh, as a nation, and have given over uh, to uh, the anaesthesia of full technicolor political entertainment. Uh, it would be a total. It is going to be a total total disaster, uh, which 
will do lasting damage to British politics, uh, Britain's role in the world, just as uh, Trump uh, promised to be in the United States and is going to be. The only good thing I can think to say about a Johnson premiership is that we simply don't know how bad it's going to be. And the other thing, and and in, in that sense, because he has no principle and because he doesn't know what truth is, he can change everything on a whim, just as Trump does. So it could be that he will promise to do something terrible, uh, like have an no deal, and then just turn on it. So it could actually be, not that this is any kind of endorsement, of course, but it could be um, that if there's any candidate who would suddenly come out of nowhere and say, right, let's have a second referendum. My friends, this truly is the path for our country. We must admit that things have not gone quite to plan, etc., etc. Uh, and it if there's, there's anyone him. who could do that it would be him but i just have no um, optimism or faith whatsoever because he has shown over many decades his manifest unfitness for any kind of office let alone prime minister okay georgina um i mean is there anything there at all i mean it's somewhere behind you know the the the, the, the posh buffoon um, is there anything else hiding there i mean it's very difficult to say um he was foreign secretary for a bit but not long enough to really kind of i think you know, draw draw lessons from that. I think he clearly um, has a certain appeal. I mean, he has a broad support right now for, within the Conservative Party. Um, and as Jonathan said, at some point, he's going to have to make decisions and tough choices. And I think that's when we will know which way he goes. But what the EU are looking for, they're looking for someone who's going to get a withdrawal agreement through or tell them either way, are you going to pass this deal? Or are you going to leave with no deal? But we need to know. Um, they, I think, will be looking at whether he is able to sell anything, whether he's able to leave. And I suspect they're expecting a very different kind of leadership from uh, Theresa May. But I think they they will be hoping that whoever replaces the Prime Minister engages in the detail and understands that this is a very, very different negotiation. The UK cannot act the way it has as a big member state because it's on its way out. And in the same way, if you haven't spent time with Brussels, you don't understand how who you're supposed to be talking to and how decisions are made, that is all going to be really crucial. So whoever replaces the Prime Minister and, and, and the team that surrounds the new Prime Minister, that's all going to be very key. Yeah. And I think the EU will be looking closely. OK, um, Jennifer, final word. Um, I mean, of course, Boris Johnson has spent time in Brussels, hasn't he? I mean, it was quite some time ago um, and he didn't leave a terrific impression behind him. Yes, in the early 90s, he was the Brussels correspondent for The Telegraph, where now he he's really known uh, for that period for spawning the whole sort of genre of Euro myths, the, these sort of stories about the EU banning prawn cocktail crisps or the, the Berlin mob is going to be blown up. Uh, these these are all things that Boris Johnson is remembered for. But then but more recently people remember him for um being at David Cameron's side, or at least being an, a key ally of David Cameron during the renegotiation. And they remember David Cameron's worries about Boris Johnson when, when Johnson was swithering over whether he should go for Remain or for Leave. So that that's also contributed to the EU impression of Boris Johnson, as has his rather limited time as, as Foreign Secretary, although he didn't really come to the Brussels EU uh, Council meetings very often, the Council of Foreign Affairs ministers and he didn't have such a great impact so so there's much that's known about Boris Johnson and I think people really fall into two camps there are the pessimists who think 
he increases the chances of a no deal um, if he becomes prime minister. And then there are the optimists who hope that the office will make the man. And interestingly, some compare the um, the experience that the EU has had with Donald Trump, where Jean-Claude Juncker went to Washington and managed to persuade Trump not to uh, take punitive action against uh, the EU, uh, EU car imports into the United States. So they hope maybe there's something to work with, but, it, but in reality I think everyone's expecting a, a quite a different Prime Minister from, from what has gone before with, with Theresa May and, and remain very insistent that there will be no renegotiation because, as, as one person has pointed out, we would be really stupid um, if we gave to Boris Johnson what we refused to, to give to, quote, the reasonable negotiators. So a Boris Johnson premiership will reinforce the EU's determination not to, to give in on these red lines that have been laid out for so long on not renegotiating the withdrawal agreement. OK, just very quick. We are out of time now, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm just going to do my now traditional sort of um, tour of the table um, for predictions. The next Brexit means will be in mid-July. Jonathan, will anything have changed? I think that um, Johnson, it really depends on the campaign. Johnson may have hardened his position about no deal when he sees what the membership uh, believes, which is very, very pro no deal. And that could mean a constitutional crisis in July, because if Parliament is still sitting when Johnson is elected, they could then take that nuclear button of not giving him their confidence, which means he will not be able to tell the Queen he enjoys the confidence of Parliament. And if Theresa May has already resigned, that means we have no viable Prime Minister. Interesting. Georgina? Uh, let me take perhaps a more optimistic view. I think uh, we'll have a new prime minister um, and I suspect that the new prime minister will say I'm going to go back to Brussels, um, either have already held talks or going to hold talks, uh, a promise for something better. And then I think we'll go into August and September and really run up to the 31st of October deadline. Which um, will be real crunch. I think that is also the likeliest option, by the way. I'm just saying there is a okay, potential natural. for constitutional okay. crisis. And Jennifer, um, in Brussels? Uh, Brussels I, will I be think on holiday, we will have or? been talking non-stop about Brexit, but um, actually nothing in the substance will have changed. We're just a bit closer to the to the exit deadline on the 31st of October into that potential crisis moment. The clock continues to the tick. The clock is ticking. Thank you very much. That's it really, is it? Um, that's brilliant. Thank you very much, Georgina and John and Jennifer. Um, we will be back with a fresh dose of Brexit bedlam, as I said, in July. Please subscribe and review on all your favourite podcatchers. Join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word, Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com. Till next time then, I'm John Henley. The producer was Simon Barnard. This was Brexit Means, and thank you very much for listening. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.